Chapter Fifteen of Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Chapter Fifteen, The Silent General, September Twenty Eighth, eighteen seventy nine. So General Grant, after circumambiating the world, has arrived home again. Landed in San Francisco yesterday from the ship City of Tokyo from Japan. What a man he is! What a history! What an illustration, his life, of the capacities of that American individuality common to us all. Cynical critics are wondering what the people can see in Grant to make such a hubbub about. They aver, and it is no doubt true, that he has hardly the average of our day's literary and scholastic culture. And absolutely no pronounced genius or conventional eminence of any sort. Correct, but he proves how the average Western farmer, mechanic, boatman, carried by tides of circumstances, perhaps caprices, into position of incredible military or civic responsibilities, history has presented none more trying, no born monarchs, no mark more shining for attack or envy, may steer his way fitly and steadily through them all. Carrying the country and himself with credit year after year, command over a million armed men, fight more than fifty pitched battles, rule for eight years a land larger than all the kingdoms of Europe combined, and then retiring quietly with a cigar in his mouth, make the promenade of the whole world, through its courts and coteries and kings and czars and mikados, and splendidest glitters and etiquettes, as phlegmatically as he ever walked the portico of a Missouri hotel after dinner. I say all this is what people like, and I am sure I like it. Seems to me it transcends Plutarch. How those old Greeks indeed would have seized on him—a mere plain man, no art, no poetry, only practical sense, ability to do or try his best to do what devolved upon him. A common trader, money maker, tanner, farmer of Illinois, general for the republic in its terrific struggle with itself in the war of attempted succession. President following a task of peace more difficult than the war itself, nothing heroic as the authorities put it, and yet the greatest hero, the gods, the destinies seem to have concentrated upon him. President Hayes's speeches, September thirty, I see President Hayes has come out west, passing quite informally from point to point, with his wife and a small cortege of big officers, receiving ovations and making daily and sometimes double daily addresses to the people. To these addresses, all impromptu, and some would call them ephemeral, I feel to devote a memorandum. They are shrewd, good-natured, face-to-face speeches, on easy topics not too deep, but they give me some revised ideas of oratory, of a new, opportune theory and practice of that art, quite changed from the classic rules and adapted to our days, our occasions to American democracy, and to the swarming populations of the West. I hear them criticized as wanting in dignity, but to me they are just what they should be, considering all the circumstances, who they come from, and who they are addressed to. Underneath, his objects are to compact and fraternize the states, encourage their materialistic and industrial development, soothe and expand their self-poise, and tie all and each with resistless double ties, not only of inter-trade barter, but of human comradeship. From Kansas City, I went on to St. Louis, where I remained nearly three months with my brother T. J. W. and my dear nieces. 
St. Louis Memoranda. October, November, and December, 1879. The points of St. Louis are its position, its absolute wealth, the long accumulations of time and trade, solid riches, probably a higher average thereof than any city, the unrivalled amplitude of its well-laid-out environage of broad plateaus for future expansion, and the great state of which it is the head. It fuses northern and southern qualities, perhaps native and foreign ones, to perfection, rendezvous the whole stretch of the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, and its American electricity goes well with its German phlegm. Fourth, fifth, and third streets are store streets, showy, modern, metropolitan, with hurrying crowds, vehicles, horse-cars, hubbub, plenty of people, rich goods, plate-glass windows, iron fronts often five or six stories high. You can purchase anything in St. Louis, in most of the big western cities, for the matter of that, just as readily and cheaply as in the Atlantic marts. Often in going about the town you see reminders of old, even decayed civilization. The water of the West, in some places, is not good, but they make it up here by plenty of very fair wine, and inexhaustible quantities of the best beer in the world. There are immense establishments for slaughtering beef and pork, and I saw flocks of sheep, five thousand in a flock. In Kansas City I had visited a packing establishment that kills and packs an average of twenty-five hundred hogs a day the whole year round for export. Another in Atchison, Kansas, same extent, others nearly equal elsewhere, and just as big ones here. Nights on the Mississippi. October twenty-ninth, thirtieth, and thirty-first. Wonderfully fine, with the full harvest moon, dazzling and silvery. I have haunted the river every night lately, where I could get a look at the bridge by moonlight. It is indeed a structure of perfection and beauty unsurpassable, and I never tire of it. The river at present is very low. I noticed to-day it had much more of a blue-clear look than usual. I hear the slight ripples, the air is fresh and cool, and the view, up or down, wonderfully clear in the moonlight. I am out pretty late, it is so fascinating, dreamy. The cool night air, all the influences, the silence, with those far-off eternal stars, do me good. I have been quite ill of late, and so, well near the centre of our national demesne, these night views of the Mississippi, upon our own land. Always, after supper, take a walk half a mile long, says an old proverb, dryly adding, and if convenient, let it be upon your own land. I wonder, does any other nation but ours afford opportunity for such a jaunt as this? Indeed, has any previous period afforded it? No one, I discover, begins to know the real geographic, democratic, and indissoluble American Union as the present, or suspected in the future, until he explores these central states, and dwells a while observantly on their prairies, or amid their busy towns, and the mighty father of waters." A ride of two or three thousand miles on one's own land, with hardly a disconnection, could certainly be had in no other place than the United States, and at no period before this. If you want to see what the railroad is, and how civilization and progress date from it, how it is the conqueror of crude nature, which it turns to man's use, both on small scales and on the largest, come hither to inland America. I returned home, East, January 5, 1880, having traversed to and fro and across ten thousand miles and more. I soon resumed my seclusions down in the woods, or by the creek, 
or gaddings about cities, and an occasional disquisition, will be seen from the following. Edgar Poe's Significance January 1, 1880 In diagnosing this disease called humanity, to assume, for the nonce, what seems a chief mood of the personality and writings of my subject, I have thought that poets, somewhere or other on the list, present the most marked indications. Comprehending artists in a mass, musicians, painters, actors, and so on, and considering each and all of them as radiations or flanges of that furious whirling wheel, poetry, the centre and axis of the whole, where else, indeed, may we so well investigate the causes, growths, tally-marks of the time, the ages, matter, and malady? By common consent there is nothing better for man or woman than a perfect and noble life, morally without flaw, happily balanced in activity, physically sound and pure, giving its due proportion, and no more, to the sympathetic, the human emotional element, a life in all these, unhasting, unresting, untiring to the end. And yet there is another shape of personality, dearer far to the artist sense, which likes the play of strongest lights and shades, where the perfect character, the good, the heroic, although never attained, is never lost sight of, but through failures, sorrows, temporary downfalls, is returned to again and again, and while often violated, is passionately adhered to as long as mind, muscles, voice, obey the power we call volition. This sort of personality we see more or less in Burns, Byron, Schiller, and George Sand. But we do not see it in Edgar Poe. All this is the result of reading at intervals the last three days a new volume of his poems. I took it on my rambles down by the pond, and by degrees read it all through there. While to the character first outlined the service Poe renders is certainly that entire contrast and contradiction which is next best to fully exemplifying it. Almost without the first sign of moral principle, or of the concrete or its heroisms, or the simpler affections of the heart, Poe's verses illustrate an intense faculty for technical and abstract beauty, with the rhyming art to excess, an incorrigible propensity toward nocturnal themes, a demoniac undertone behind every page, and by final judgment probably belong among the electric lights of imaginative literature, brilliant and dazzling, but with no heat. There is an indescribable magnetism about the poet's life and reminiscences, as well as the poem's. To one who could work out their subtle retracing and retrospect, the latter would make a close tally, no doubt, between the author's birth and antecedents, his childhood and youth, his physique, his so-called education, his studies and associates, the literary and social Baltimore, Richmond, Philadelphia, and New York, of those times, not only the places and circumstances in themselves, but often, very often, in a strange spurning of and reaction from them all. The following from a report in the Washington Star of November 16, 1875, may afford those who care for it something further of my point of view toward this interesting figure and influence of our era. There occurred about that date in Baltimore a public reburial of Poe's remains, and a dedication of a monument over the grave. Being in Washington on a visit at the time, the old gray went over to Baltimore, and though ill from paralysis, consented to hobble up and silently take a seat on the platform, but refused to make any speech, saying, I have felt a strong impulse to come over and be here to-day, myself, in memory of Poe, which I have obeyed, but not the slightest impulse to make a speech, 
which my dear friends must also be obeyed. In an informal circle, however, in conversation after the ceremonies, Whitman said, For a long while, and until lately, I had a distaste for Poe's writings. I wanted, and still want for poetry, the clear sun shining and fresh air blowing, the strength and power of health, not of delirium, even amid the stormiest passions, with always the background of the eternal moralities. Non-complying with these requirements, Poe's genius has yet conquered a special recognition for itself, and I, too, have come to fully admit it, and appreciate it, and him. In a dream I once had, I saw a vessel on the sea, at midnight, in a storm. It was no great full-rigged ship, nor majestic steamer, steering firmly through the gale, but seemed one of those superb little schooner yachts I had often seen lying anchored, rocking so jauntily in the waters around New York, or up on Long Island Sound, now flying uncontrolled with torn sails and broken spars through the wild sleet and winds and waves of the night. On the deck was a slender, slight, beautiful figure, a dim man, apparently enjoying all the terror, the murk, and the dislocation of which he was the centre and the victim. That figure of my lurid dream might stand for Edgar Poe, his spirit, his fortunes, and his poems, themselves all lurid dreams. Much more may be said, but I most desired to exploit the idea put at the beginning. By its popular poets the calibres of an age, the weak spots of its embankments, its sub-currents, often more significant than the biggest surface ones, are unerringly indicated. The lush and the weird that have taken such extraordinary possession of nineteenth-century verse-lovers, what mean they? The inevitable tendency of poetic culture to morbidity, abnormal beauty, the sickliness of all technical thought or refinement in itself, the abnegation of the perennial and democratic concretes at first hand, the body, the earth, and sea, sex, and the like, and the substitution of something for them at second or third hand, what bearings have they on current pathological study? Beethoven's Septet February 11, 1880 At a good concert to-night in the foyer of the Opera House, Philadelphia, the band a small but first-rate one. Never did music more sink into and soothe and fill me, never so prove its soul-rousing power, its impossibility of statement especially in the rendering of one of Beethoven's master septets by the well-chosen and perfectly combined instruments, violins, viola, clarionet, horn, cello, and contrabass, I was carried away, seeing, absorbing many wonders. Dainty abandons, sometimes as if nature laughing on a hillside in the sunshine, serious and firm monotonies, as of winds, a horn sounding through the tangle of the forest, and the dying echoes, soothing, floating of waves, but presently rising in surges, angrily lashing, muttering, heavy, piercing peals of laughter, for interstices, now and then weird, as nature herself is in certain moods, but mainly spontaneous, easy, careless, often the sentiment of the postures of naked children playing or sleeping. It did me good even to watch the violinists drawing their bows so masterly, even motion a study. I allowed myself, as I sometimes do, to wander out of myself. The conceit came to me of a copious grove of singing birds, and in their midst a simple harmonic duo, two human souls steadily asserting their own pensiveness, joyousness. A HINT OF WILD NATURE February 13. As I was crossing the Delaware to-day, I saw a large flock of wild geese, right overhead, not very high up, ranged in V-shape, in relief against the noon clouds of light smoke-color. 
had a capital though momentary view of them, and even then of their course on and on southeast, till gradually fading, my eyesight yet first-rate for the open air and its distances, but I use glasses for reading. Queer thoughts melted into me in the two or three minutes, or less, seeing these creatures cleaving the sky, the spacious, airy realm, even the prevailing smoke-gray color everywhere, no sun shining, the waters below, the rapid flight of the birds, appearing just for a minute, flashing to me such a hint of the whole spread of nature, with her eternal unsophisticated freshness, her never-visited recesses of sky, sea, and shore, and then disappearing in the distance. Loafing in the Woods March 8. I write this down in the country again, but in a new spot, seated on a log in the woods, warm, sunny, midday. Have been loafing here among the deep trees, shafts of tall pines, oak, hickory, with a thick undergrowth of laurels and grapevines, the ground covered everywhere by debris, dead leaves, breakage, moss, everything solitary, ancient, grim. Paths, such as they are, leading hither and yon, how made I know not, for nobody seems to come here, nor man, nor cattle kind. Temperature to-day about sixty, the wind through the pine-tops. I sit and listen to its hoarse sighing above, and to the stillness, long and long, varied by aimless rambles in the old roads and paths, and by exercise pulls at the young saplings, to keep my joints from getting stiff. Bluebirds, robins, meadowlarks begin to appear. Next day, ninth. A snowstorm in the morning, and continuing most of the day. But I took a walk over two hours, the same woods and paths, amid the falling flakes. No wind, yet the musical low murmur through the pines, quite pronounced, curious like waterfalls, now stilled, now pouring again. All the senses, sight, sound, smell, delicately gratified. Every snowflake lay where it fell on the evergreens, holly trees, laurels, etc., the multitudinous leaves and branches, piled, bulging white, defined by edge-lines of emerald, the tall, straight columns of the plentiful, bronze-topped pines, a slight resinous odor blending with that of the snow. For there is a scent to everything, even the snow, if you can only detect it. No two places, hardly any two hours, anywhere exactly alike. How different the odor of noon from midnight, or winter from summer, or a windy spell from a still one. A Contralto Voice May 9, Sunday Visit this evening to my friends, the J's. Good supper, to which I did justice. Lively chat with Mrs. J and I and J. As I sat out front on the walk long afterward in the evening air, the church choir and organ on the opposite corner gave Luther's hymn, Ein Festeberg, very finely. The air was borne by a rich contralto. For nearly half an hour there in the dark, there was a good string of English stanzas, came the music, firm and unhurried, with long pauses. The full silver star-beams of Lyra rose silently over the church's dim roof-ridge. Very-colored lights from the stained-glass windows broke through the tree-shadows. And under all, under the northern crown up there, and in the fresh breeze below, and the chiaroscuro of the night, that liquid full contralto. Seeing Niagara to Advantage June 4, 1880 for really seizing a great picture or book, or piece of music, or architecture, or grand scenery, or perhaps for the first time even the common sunshine, or landscape, or maybe even the mystery of identity, most curious mystery of all, there comes some lucky five minutes of a man's life, set amid a fortuitous concurrence of circumstances, and bringing in a brief flash the culmination of years of reading and travel and thought.' 
The present case about two o'clock this afternoon gave me Niagara, its superb severity of action and color and majestic grouping, in one short, indescribable show. We were very slowly crossing the suspension bridge, not a full stop anywhere, but next to it, the day clear, sunny, still, and I out on the platform. The falls were in plain view about a mile off, but very distinct, and no roar, hardly a murmur. The river tumbling green and white, far below me, the dark high banks, the plentiful umbrage, many bronze cedars in shadow, and tempering and arching all the immense materiality, a clear sky overhead, with a few white clouds, limpid, spiritual, silent. Brief, and as quiet as brief, that picture, a resemblance afterwards. Such are the things, indeed, I lay away with my life's rare and blessed bits of hours, reminiscent, past, the wild sea-storm I once saw one winter day, off Fire Island, the elder booth in Richard, that famous night forty years ago in the old Bowery, or Alboni in the children's scene in Norma, or night views, I remember, on the field after battles in Virginia, or the peculiar sentiment of moonlight and stars over the Great Plains, western Kansas, or scooting up New York Bay with a stiff breeze and a good yacht, off Navasink. With these, I say, I henceforth place that view, that afternoon, that combination complete, that five minutes perfect absorption of Niagara, not the great majestic gem alone by itself, but set complete in all its varied, full, indispensable surroundings. End of chapter 15